0: Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of a four part series entitled The Messianic Idea in Jewish History. The series was filmed in 2021 at Caulfield Shul. To see the video recording, please refer either to David's YouTube channel or go to the episode webpage, which you will find at davidsolomon.online. This entire series is a massive chutzpah. It really is. The messianic idea in Jewish history. But we are told by the great sages of Israel that the Messiah will come in a generation where, as the Gemara puts it, chutzpah yaskei, that there'll be much chutzpah in that generation. So I'm kind of thinking that although my talk is a chutzpah, it may well serve to bring the redemption closer by adding to the amount of chutzpah already current in our generation it's a chutzpah because it's an enormous topic and almost every single thing i'm going to say on it is its own subject in jewish studies i want to say that from the outset and like i always say we're skimming over in a horror craft to cover the main framework of what you would spend time delving into but the hovercraft still provides a coherent picture of an overview of where we understand at the moment historically and in scholarship and so on i'm bringing to this course two well at the end no, no let me leave that at the end of the day it's a, i want to give this series in a history framework and so i'm going to embed it in the actual history of the jewish people but i'm going to be guided by the emergence and resurgence of this thing called the messianic idea to cut it short we're going to talk about the messianic idea as the the idea not yet the belief but actually the apprehension of reality the idea that there is a time that will come a kind of end time We can call that, in very fancy terms, we can call that an eschaton. The concept eschatological means things to do with the end times, but there will be an end times. This is the basic picture that emerges this idea that we might all sign off and go, yeah, yeah, that's the Messianic idea. If you have to describe it, this is what it is. There are many nuances and deviations, but this might be basically what it is that there will be an age which may be the end of history, it may be the beginning of history, but it will be ushered in by a person who is an embodiment of the ideals of the new eon, of the new age, but who qualifies from the old age for that role they are the transitional moment they and the insta- in, in nominal what we might call <laughs> and I only learned this word the other night some of you may go oh what a boomer but I only learned this word the other night what we might call norm core values put your hand up if you know the word norm core <laughs> yeah oh, oh. good 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 use it it's extremely hip with your kids it's fantastic now the norm core idea of that transitional figure is that he qualifies for from the old world meaning he's going to look like something like he's going to be kingly so he's going to have qualities of king he's going to have qualities of uh of of Torah and he's going to obviously not only keep the mitzvot himself of the Torah but he's going to get others to do it and Significantly, importantly, and perhaps um, essentially, he needs to be a descendant of King David. So you have those things, and then you transition into the the, the eschaton. There are many scholars who we've all we've done is we've provided a definition of the messianic idea, and I think I haven't seen anybody vigorously shake their head. And that that and that, that Messiah will come, and there's all different variations. And the Messiah will come and usher it in, and that will mean a range of things for the world, for the Jewish people, whatever. But it will be the New Age, and there won't be any Mitzvahs. Everything will be good. Some, many, not so many scholars believe that that picture, that idea is not really older than, say, the 1st century BCE. In the late Hellenic, late, late Hellenic, already in fact uh, late ant- getting to late antiquity in-, in those terms were already, you know, <sighs> moving the Hasmonean, Roman and then Roman and then Roman and then Roman. And so... That's the origins, really, of the Hazalic picture of the world, and that's where our picture, with all its Midrashic qualities, comes from. And, of course, that is the milieu from which we get some very, very big figures in the Messianic chain that we won't be discussing tonight. Because tonight, I'm going to go way back before then, I think there is, I'm not going to use this talk um as an altar on which to offer a, any particular argument about it, but I want to make, I want to point out that there seems to be a very convincing case that the evolution of that idea, of that picture, and I say evolution in a way that I think you'll understand later on, is that the evolution of that picture starts way before, of course, and it starts in Tanakh, it starts in the Hebrew Bible. Obviously. The question scholars have is the picture in the Hebrew Bible the same picture as Chazal have, the same picture as we have. So those are some of the things I'm going to touch upon. But tonight I'm going to focus on Tanakh. I'm going to focus on the Bible to look at several moments which either propel or are propelled by the messianic idea in its evolution towards what we now understand. And remember, I'm embedding this in history more than in just ideas, so the idea is important. But it's the historical application of it that concerns me most in this series, and we will bring it hopefully up to... The present moment, but we're going to start with Tanakh. Now, <laughs> the Tanakh does in its various parts, and as you know, it's a complicated and complex composite, the Tanakh. But it does have in its pages this idea of acharita often translated dramatically as the end of days. It just, you know, it's the Tanakh's way of saying much later. The Messianic idea already kind of pops up in a way, but in a way that's kind of ambiguous and we would have to reinterpret somewhat anachronistically from later perspectives in Jewish history and thought and writings to read it this way. But there are allusions in the Torah itself to the Messiah. Anyone want to offer any examples from the Torah? Oh, you see, that's why they call him the Sif Yosef. Of course, Yaakov, blessing his children, chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the law giver from between his feet, until and the extremely ambiguous words, until he shall come, Shiloh. Much later levels of Jewish literacy read that as a messianic reference. Another one, of course, is possibly even more famous in some ways, is of course in Sefer Bamidbar, when the famous false prophet Bilam says, I'm seeing it, but not now. I'm beholding this thing, but it's not close. It's like way in the future. And this, once again, part of a passage that is introduced under the label of Acharitayamim. This is Bilam's prophecy about the end of days. Darach Kochav Miyakov, a star shall yeah, set forth from Jacob and then conquer all the nations around. This is also later seen as a messianic reference, but they're very oblique and they're not terribly direct for our purpose. The real origin of our understanding of the Yamim of the end of days, of course, in a very blatant and direct way, comes from the great prophets of Israel. The ones that emerged during the second temple period. And almost every prophet, every Navi, speaks of it. And it appears to contain certain things that are common to this vision. One, of course, is the idea of redemption. And people think, sitting there going, oh, was probably sitting here, even me sitting here or standing here going, oh, redemption. Oh, okay, fair enough. But what is redemption? We often hear the word and we talk about it and we use it very extensively to describe something, but what actually is it? What does it mean to redeem something? i'm taking off my jacket it's warm it is not (laughs) redeeming is not saving someone's in a difficult situation you move in you grab them you take them out you extract them that's a saving from the difficult situation it's not a redeeming a slave when they're freed is not saved the slave is redeemed when you pay a ransom to release a hostage you're redeeming them redemption has a transactional quality you might you have to pay to restore them but fundamentally redemption implies a change a fundamental change in status physically and spiritually you are redeemed you're not just saved if you're just saved, it means you're taken from one situation that's bad and put in a situation that's okay. But you're still the same person. You, God saved. But when you're redeemed, your entire status is altered. I was a slave. I'm now a free man. I was a sinner. I'm now righteous. In the eyes of God. Redemption. Everybody talks about redemption. If you want to see the fundamental uh, basis, probably the most stunning evocation of the emphasis on the concept of redemption, you'll see it, of course, in the book of Yishayahu towards the end, from around chapter 41 onwards. And basically from there, almost through every single other prophet mentions redemption, but you probably won't get a more stunning and amazing picture of what redemption means than uh, the, the the chapters from uh, forty one onwards in, in the book of Ishael. The other, there's another. There's some factors that this picture of the Naviim give us. This is I'm only part of my discussion now on the on the concept of the messianic idea. We're going to apply it to history, but what else are we looking at? And we need to lay some groundwork of these, this fundamental vision. The other would be there is a return. Once God effects the redemption of the Jewish people from exile or from slavery or from whatever it is, there is a return. There is always a return. There is always a return. The return, of course, is prophesied by many of the Niveyim. Even someone as early as the very chronologically speaking, the earliest of the great prophets of Israel, Amos, is speaking about the return he of course is speaking about the return of the lost tribes of Israel that he saw vanquished in his own time well he was the one that was prophesying about it in the northern kingdom but they all speak about this concept of return now the Torah had already spoken about the return of the Jewish people from exile that it foresaw but the Torah is not giving that as part of a uh, what, we, what we call an eschaton, it's not giving it as part of an acharitayamim vision, it's giving it a, 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 as part of the Torah's literally saying this is the way history is going to work. And the Torah has been correct, obviously. But the neviim are welding that idea of the return <coughs> to the idea of an ideal society an ideal society a society completely just and righteous and free the eschatological vision the yaharitaim vision of the prophets of israel also give us <laughs> and really are among the first to conceive this idea already in the 8th century BCE of world peace. That ideal scenario of the Jewish people redeemed and returned and setting up this new order, that's not just for themselves. That's part of a totally new order for the world, which is world peace. And what's the... Locus classicus of world peace in Tanakh. What's the classic uh, source for that? Who speaks about world peace? Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu. Huh? even- <coughs> It's chapter two of the book of Yeshayahu. It's, Lo yisago yelgoi cherev, velo yilmedu od milchama. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor will they learn any more (laughs) war. Go into Glicks on a Friday morning and ask people if they know where in Tanakh they will find the source of world peace. I would have thought if you have, you know, an entire Jewish education just to learn that it would be enough. I'm sorry. Sometimes when I talk about Tanakh, I, I sometimes um, I enter into a universe where I, I uh, there's 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 nothing else but Tanakh. We're still in Tanakh. <laughs> All right. The prophets of Israel also give us, oh yeah, that old chestnut, a new Torah in this new age. A new Torah. The source of that new Torah, probably the most significant source of that would be Yao, chapter 31 famously. A Brit Chadasha, A new covenant. We also get a new spirit. Verua Chadasha eten be'kir be'chem says the prophet Ezekiel in famously in chapters 11, chapters 18. I will give you a new spirit. You're going to be completely transformed in how you live and how you want to live and how you're going to set up the society, you and the world. It's going to be completely different. And of course, we get a new temple. And anybody who wants to see what that looks like can look at the last eight chapters, eight, nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. It'll tell you all about the temple. And even though you might ask, oh, but David, Ezekiel's living after the first temple. Maybe he's talking about the second. I can tell you that when they built the second temple, they didn't build it according to his design. He was talking about what we now refer to as the third temple, the ultimate temple. In other words, this picture of the prophets is a picture built on the fulfillment of prophetic faith in the social justice and restoration promises of God. That's what it looks like. Predicated on justice, predicated on righteousness. That's the vision but it's allied with something more than just an ideal blueprint. It's allied with a process of history where God facilitates this by redeeming the Jewish people from a state that would require restoration. Now, the other... (laughs) The interesting thing about that whole picture and the various sources that I've brought you and this golden age that gets ushered in at the end of history effectively by God, what is missing there in all those passages and in that picture is clearly a Messiah. They have described the end of days and they've described what we would call the messianic period but they have not given us a messiah they have not given us a dude or dudette they have apparently left that out what i want to explore with you is the idea really that there are two different visions of the end of days that become synthesized. Not in Tanakh so much, but in living history as the idea evolves. Because the other picture that the prophets of Israel give us is that there is a king, there is a leader that is... Connected with this golden age that is coming. That leader is a righteous king. It is the overwhelming righteousness of that king himself that ushers in the age. He is the ultimate ruler. He is the ultimate king. He is a representation and conduit for divine will. And we have this picture in concert with this eschatological picture with no king. Some scholars have even called that the monarchial and non-monarchial model of the eschatology. But we're going to explore that because it gets complicated. Not complicated, but there are some interesting high points along the road about how that those two ideas become wedded together. The earliest reference to the idea of a messianic king is remarkably early. Anyone know what that is? I would, I would be extremely impressed if anyone knew this um, this is an obscure pasuk and when you read it you really have to be paying attention to what you're reading to pick up its what the it's a pasuk that says v'yiten oz malko he shall give strength to his king v'yarem keren mishicho." And shall lift the horn of his anointed one. Allying the concepts of king and anointed for the very first time. Because the word Mashiach means anointed. But in the Torah it always refers to the priest. The anointed high priest. The word the Messiah does not really appear in Tanakh. Anointed, Mashiach means anointed. But the first welding of that idea of the anointed one to the king who is effectively of God is where? And the remarkable thing about it is where it comes from in Tanakh. Because it comes from the second chapter of Samuel 1. It is from the Tefillah of Chanah the prayer of Hannah after she brings her little child Samuel to serve in the tabernacle and she offers this incredible prayer of high praise and prophecy. In the course of which she utters the verse, he shall give strength, he shall give power to his king and shall raise the horn of his anointed one. We don't even have a king yet. What are you talking about, khan And in fact, uh, obviously the commentaries there are going, oh, it's prophecy. And yes, it's very powerful prophecy and it's a very powerful insight because Samuel is the person that's going to effect the transition to the kingship, to the rise of the king. He's going to anoint the first two kings of Israel. By the way, just as an aside, who's feeling confident about their knowledge of Tanakh? No one? Oh, well then, the question won't be fun. (laughs) Uh, There are only six kings in Tanakh that are explicitly said to have been anointed. I know that there's a Gemara in Horayot that says that, you know, it's assumed that the kings were anointed, you know, the sons of kings didn't need anointing, or if they're anointing, it didn't need saying, or uh, some actually said that uh, they weren't anointed. There's another opinion. There are only six kings explicitly anointed. Of course, that has... Mystical meaning in itself, because we're waiting for the seventh. Mm. Mm. Who were the six kings that were anointed in Tanakh? Shaul, David, Shlomo, very good. Who's next? The the next three are the hard ones, right? Yehu, Yehoah, and not Yoshiahu, yes, uh, no, Yehoash, Yehoash. And Yohoachas. All right. All different reasons, all things going on there. Okay. So now we have a picture where there is and and, and obviously there are numerous instances throughout Tanakh where we see that picture. But I want to before we just hit the, the the hardcore historical pictures that I want to give us about this idea that we have. This different focus on the on the Acharita or we have this king that embodies it. I read you. This is very interesting. That's interesting too. It was probably someone's alarm to wake up in the middle of my talk. All right. This is, from, this is from chapter 9 of the book of Amos. Pasuk Yudalof. I'm going to read in Hebrew. No one needs to panic. I will translate. I'm looking around for signs of panic at people. I'm going to read in Hebrew. I won't read that slowly, and I will translate as I go. Yep. But I can't sit here and read Tanakh. I'm not reading the language of Tanakh. This is amazing because I want you to bear in mind everything I've just said now, and then we have a look at this. In chapter nine of the book of Amos, Amos. B'yom ha-hu akim et sukkat David on that day I will raise up again the fallen tabernacle of David. I'll build it firm as in days of old. I'll mend its breaches, set up its ruins anew, and I'll build it firm as in days of old. I'm reading the JPS translation here just for, just for the sake of ease. So. Huh. Okay. I'll, 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 he then goes on to give for the next few so psukim this astonishing eschatological uh, utopia of the restored Israel. It's got all of the elements that we just spoke about. Almost all of the elements. But it's preceded by this verse, I shall set up again the Sukkot David, the fallen tabernacle of David. This is Amos, ladies and gentlemen. If we're going to say there was a synthesis, some kind of synthesis, between the northern and the southern kingdoms, between the idea of an unspecified social justice utopia and the idea that there is an embodiment of the utopia in a Judean king, what's that doing in the mouth of a prophet in the north of Israel at the beginning of the 8th century? Or earlier. So part of that issue has been looked at by scholars who come up with all sorts of answers in apicursis that I will not unleash on you now. Suffice it to say, I have looked at that and uh, uh, there are some interesting perspectives to it. Ultimately, Amos is talking about a concept called Sukkot David. He's talking about the remnants of the scattered, the scattered exiles of the tribes, the northern tribes of Israel. They will once again come under the fold of David and Sukkot David. Sukkat David is the idea of the unified 12 tribes under one king. It's not... It's not and apart from the fact that Amos himself was from the south, it's not inconceivable that he is talking about a unified kingdom that brings this about. Already there, we start to see the hint of a synthesis between these two ideas. But I'm going to start talking about historical figures, and if we're going to talk about historical figures that are motivated by or pursue the messianic claim, which most of this series will do, now that I have premised these fundamental ideas in Tanakh, the first figure in Tanakh that we would look at as being, well, well, he's not really a messianic candidate because he is the Messiah. (sighs) Obviously, we're going to have to look at David. We're going to have to look at David himself. Why is it that he is the progenitor of the messianic picture? What is it about David? First of all, on the one hand, he comes from he is anointed in adversity and has to come in as an agent of change in the social order. That is one thing that David represents in the transition from the Benjamite kingdom of Saul to the Judean kingdom of David. But also, on the other hand, his entire uh, kingdom is predicated on justice. It derives its legitimacy from justice. (laughs) David's kingdom is undone more by injustice than it is by military threat. Many of the subsequent kings of Israel thought, and rulers of Israel at various times, thought that their power would be secured and that their kingdom would be legitimated by force, by military prowess, or even by economic treaty. But the kingdom of David, the kingdom that David avowedly sought to set up and did attempt to set up, was a kingdom predicated on justice and which drew its legitimacy from justice. The closest David's kingdom came to, the closest David himself came to being undermined was through injustice, not through any enemy at the gates. So David is, but the real reason we look at it is because all the Judean kings. Derived the legitimacy from David because David has a special covenant with God which you can find in the book of Shmuel. And God says there'll always be someone, if someone's going to sit on the throne, they're going to be a Davidic king, not just Judean, they're going to be a descendant of yours because the idea there is that ultimately the ultimate king the ultimate wise and just ruler will be in the footsteps of David Aviv David his father I did want to just say one more thing actually about the prophetic vision that we we spoke of before I just wanted to make an interesting observation that I didn't uh, do uh, before we move on to the next kind of individual I want to talk about Um, is that what is really interesting in and parallel, and, and it's possible this is a chidush, but I'll ask forgiveness of anybody that's listening to this later and says that's not a chidush, uh, I wrote that, or whatever. But there seems to be a parallel between the widening of the scope of messianic activity, yeah, from the righteous king of Israel, to world peace. And that the new social order is not simply ushered in for us. It's not just a situa- case where Israel is, Vishavtem ve'en macharid, that they will dwell securely and no one will make them afraid. It's the entire world order has changed. There's world peace seems to work in parallel with the increasing universalization of the concept of God itself. That God is not merely the God of the Jewish people, but in fact the universal God of the whole world and of everything and therefore demands justice and righteousness from the whole world, which is one of the great revolutionary (laughs) moments in the prophetic tradition and of course we see it most in Sefer Yishayahu in the book of Isaiah and of course because I've raised the book of Yishayahu the book of Isaiah which is really where you will find everything that you're looking for in the prophets and certainly when it comes to the vision. Who really is the first figure that we would look at biblically and say that person either embodies or is moved by or propels forward the idea of the messianic king? Not just the king that's anointed for the day, but the king that is anointed to usher in the new who would be the first person we would look at david well we just looked at david david i'm dealing with as a prototype there's also another prototype i mean (laughs) back to the subject of chutzpah you do realize that there have been some very towering pieces of scholarship written over the last hundred years or so in jewish thought on the topic of the messianic idea Joseph Klausner's famous work from the 1920s, the messianic idea in Israel, where he posits the ultimate prototype of the Messiah is in fact Moses. It is in fact Moshe. And that idea resonates hugely with Kabbalistic texts that are not so gung-ho on David as a messianic figure as they are on Moshe. Because who Goel Rishon, he was the first redeemer. Who Goel Acharon, he's the last one. And of course, being the giver of the Torah as well, which is the river of continuum that runs between all those points. Moshe is the, is the Messiah, messianic prototype. Uh, but I, in this talk, I'm to talked about David as the messianic prototype for the righteous Judean king, who embodies that one of the Excellent, excellent nomination, but we're going to go one before that. And, of course, and that's why I brought up Sefer Yishayahu, the book of Isaiah. We are going to discuss your suggestion in a moment, but there's one figure we're going to look at briefly before that, and that, of course, is an extremely important figure in relation to the topic of this series. And that, of course, is... King Hezekiah, who was a contemporary, in other words, he was the king for the prophet Isaiah. You've got to understand, Hezekiah was the greatest of the Judean kings. The Tanakh itself says of him, Before him there wasn't, after him there isn't, including David. He's just off the scale. What's the story with Hezkiyahu? Why was he regarded as such a phenomenal king? I mean... He is more than likely the subject of the famous verses in Yeshayahu chapter 9, Kiyeled Yulad Lanu. The child is born unto us. He will wear government on his shoulders of righteousness and so on. A set of psukim, of course, appropriated by another religion much later on. But Hezekiah was certainly almost the subject of that. Hezekiah, what did he do? Well, I'm not going to go into great detail here about his career because obviously two things. One, I've spoken about it extensively elsewhere and even perhaps in this room, so in this room at other times or in other rooms at other times. And secondly, of course, because his story is right there in Tanakh and thirdly because you already know it probably, and I'm just going to go over it in brief so we can focus on what it is about Hezekiah that was remarkable. (coughs) And (coughs) we could point to many things, but the one that is going to really um, inspire us to understand who this figure was is the fact that (laughs) he saw... The Northern Kingdom vanquished. Vanquished meaning obliterated, annihilated. Its population ethnically cleansed completely and the entire project of the Ten Tribes ended. But 20 years later, the Assyrians came back to do the same thing to Judah and this was the end of Jewish history. This was the a full existential moment of the end of jewish history this was the annihilation of the judean kingdom there was no israel there's only judah and judah has been completely conquered and ravished and there's only one little pixel left on the map and that is jerusalem and there's 200 or so Assyrian soldiers are waiting to take the city and end it and they sent emissaries what are you talking about you're not going to stand before us you know how many nations we've conquered that have told us their gods will help them out you go, no. surrender and it might be easy hezekiah the king takes these letters and he goes to the roof of the temple and he opens up the letters to heaven and he says god this is it if you're going to intervene in history, now is the moment and poof, the divine intervenes in history. Because that is the point at which all of the theohistorical background in Tanakh, everything from Bereshit Bara Elohim, in the beginning God created the world, and then the Avod, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Yosef, and Moshe, and then all of the judges, and the, 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 the leaders, and the kings, and the whole history of the David, and everything, the temple, and the Jewish people, everything is dragged into objective real history at that moment. That's the juncture. Because that fact that the Assyrian army, and I know that there are different historical views on what may exactly have happened. I'm not going into that now. But the fact that Jerusalem was saved and the Assyrian army went elsewhere is recorded outside of the Tanakh. It's recorded by the Assyrians. It's recorded by other ancient world historians. It is the moment that we talk about that is the beginning of capital H history. That's not to say that anything that happened before that moment didn't happen. Obviously, the Tanakh is reflecting a reality that's eventually going to be brought in total sync with what we know from archaeology, from chronology, from history. But that's the moment where they merge. That's the moment where we start to have corroboration from other sources. That's the divine intervention. That's the new order. Hezekiah was so great. And you know that he rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. You know all that because, um, and you know, you're, archaeological guide in israel will show you the pool that the conduit of water and all the other things that hezekiah did of course the rabbis much later on made a big deal of hezekiah but he was so great that of course he prompts the most radical opinion about the messiah that exists anywhere in jewish literature which is found in the talmud in masechet sanhedrin the famous comment that. in the name of Hillel the Amora, not Hillel the Elder that you know from Pirkei Avot, but Hillel the Amorah, who made his famous remark, Ein Mashiach le There's no Mashiach for Israel. My opinion is, there's no Messiah. No Messiah coming. Why is there no Messiah coming? It's a whole discussion in the Gemara about Why that, what he meant by that thought, because they are scandalized by that. Because Israel had a whole bunch of prophecies about what the Messiah should do and who he should be, and they fulfilled it all in the days of Hezekiah. He ate it all up. He was Mashiach. Prophecies fulfilled. Let's move on. Of course, the rabbis come back in the Gemara and they say, well, <laughs> they refute it. And they refute it, of course, and it's interesting, they could refute it with a number of verses, but the famous verse that they decide to refute it with, and once again, we don't have more time to go deep, deep into the metaphysical implications of this Gemara, because it's an astonishing Gemara, but the pasuk they refute him with is the famous pasuk from Yeshayahu. Gili bat tzion, hari bat Yerushalayim. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. your king's coming. I know he's poor and he's riding on a donkey and he's coming there, and that's the gospel. In other words, we're still waiting for him. We're still waiting for him. Well, those prophecies were not fulfilled in Hezekiah. We got prophecies afterwards. The Mishnah itself, the Mishnah in Psachim says of Hezekiah that It's because he cut the doors off to the temple and sent them to Sanherib or whatever, and you know, he wasn't—he uh, was righteous, he was amazing, but he wasn't quite worth to usher in what we call the messianic era. But Hezekiah. Is a messianic figure in the Bible that is propelled by this idea of the righteous king. And yet, what's interesting is this what's interesting is that Yeshayahu, who is writing during Hezekiah's career, I'll put some post it notes, matanach, so i find things easily. Not have to waste your time flipping pages, but I'm flipping pages. <laughs> In that very, very famous passage from Isaiah 11, that some of you will know. And a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Yishai of Jesse, and a twig shall sprout from his stock. The spirit of Hashem shall alight upon him—a spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and valor, a spirit of devotion and reverence for the Lord. He shall sense the truth by his etc. So it's the righteous king, it's the righteous Davidic king that's going to usher in the new era. And then, of course, he even reiterates the great, the great vision, the fully eschatological, non-malachial vision that he gave in chapter two. He reiterates it here, but fully synthesized now together with this righteous king. But the key here is the tense. It's not Hezekiah. It's someone yet to come. It is someone yet to come, even for Isaiah. The righteous Davidic king who ushers in the new era is not here yet. But he comes. He comes. And he comes in the form of Hezekiah's great-grandson. So about it. about 70, 80 years later. Yoshiyahu or Josiah is living in a kind of a different universe from Hezekiah. I mean, Hezekiah's son, who ruled for over half a century, Menashe, was an appallingly wicked king. His son was an even more appallingly wicked king, Amon. So Josiah's father and grandfather were wicked men, power-hungry men who ruled as despots for the sake of rule. Put all spiritual progress into opposition, banned the Torah, effectively banned Judaism, and attempted to turn uh, Judah into a fully polytheistic secular state. But Josiah who came to the throne through circumstances, at a very circumstances, at a relatively young age, had a realisation around the time of his Bar Mitzvah that he was in fact a Davidic king and he wanted to be a righteous Davidic king. He didn't want to be one of those kings that the Bible says, oh, he was a wicked person. He wanted to be one of those people the Bible's going to say he walked in the ways of God. He was a righteous king. He perceived that righteousness was the key to the legitimacy of the Davidic throne, that every throne needs a legitimacy based in moral values, and he decided he was going to be that person. The career of Josiah is the true beginning of ideological messianism. It's not a synthesis between the new era picture and the monarchy and the Judean monarchy that became concretized in Hezekiah from which forth at the time that the idea itself became synthesized in him and then propelled forward here Josiah is propelled forward by the prophetic vision together with the Judean king I am the Davidic king the Tanakh is talking about that will bring this in Josiah has an avowed ambition and he's living in a different political world from Hezekiah the world of Josiah is the world of the disintegration and crumbling of the Assyrian empire there is a vacuum in the Middle East that Josiah is able to take advantage of and he starts conquering other parts of Israel in an avowed attempt to reunite all the tribes under Sukkot David, under the concept of the unified kingdom under David. Part of that, of course, restoring the temple. And in restoring the temple, they discover a scroll of the Torah. Let's put aside the discussion now. Some scholars will tell you that was Sefer Devarim. Some will tell you it's the full Torah. But he discovers this scroll and they suspect that it's the Torah because the previous two kings had banned the Torah so no one really had a copy of it. And they found it in a, secreted in a wall of the temple when they were repairing. It. Now you're Josiah and you're propelled by messianic fervour and you've got Jerusalem syndrome on crack and you find the only remaining scroll of the Torah you're going to be pretty excited. And you're also going to be excited about what your eyes are going to see when you open it up. This is a cosmic moment in history. It was a pivotal moment. Josiah knew that whatever verse his eyes landed on first were going to have cosmic import. If the Torah was the authentic Torah that it seemed to be. If I can imagine that Josiah, on opening up the scroll or having it opened up in front of me him, would have probably, given the way his life and fortune had gone till then, would have probably been expecting a verse that would, in a way, confirm his messianic ambition. <laughs> he was fully from Josiah. He was fully on board with this messianic idea. He opens up the Sefer Torah, and what verse does his uh, do his eyes land on? A famous verse in the twenty eighth chapter of Devarim. the God will lead away. Meaning, put into exile, lead away the king that you have put over you to a land which you and your fathers knew not—a land where they worship stones and wood. Not exactly what Josiah was expecting to see, and that's why they went and they asked Huldah the prophetess, "What's going on here?" And she said, "Well, it is the correct, it is the true Torah, uh, and yep, that prophecy is going to be fulfilled." It won't happen to you, Josiah, because you're a nice guy. You've humbled yourself before God. You're righteous. God's happy with you. So it won't happen to you, but it's going to happen. Effectively telling Josiah that whatever you do, you're not going to be the one. History has built up debt that needs to be paid only by Uh, costly outcomes and at the very first stage we're not talking destruction and full exile yet just the exile of the king that does not seem to deter Josiah from the pursuit of his messianic program because the big moment for Josiah and he goes about an entire entire revolution of the country from top to bottom, religiously. The Torah now becomes the new ideology and constitution of the state, particularly Sefer Dvarim. But it was a revolution from on high. People probably would have thought, oh, well, till now we had the Assyrians telling us what we had to do. Now we've got some Judean king out, you know, the king of the Jews telling us what to do. It's just, okay, that's what you do. This is the new religion. This is the new laws. Yep. When the government tells you to wear a mask, you put a mask on. It wasn't a groundswell necessarily. But Josiah's ambition uh, nevertheless was pretty grand. He thought there might be a way in which he would be able to sidestep some of those issues and still usher in the messianic era almost by force and that of course is when he met his demise because pharaoh necho heading an army up to southern turkey over there in order to shore up the remains of the assyrian army meets josiah at megiddo josiah stops necho's war with not with josiah Nechor's war was with Babylon in defense of Assyria. But Josiah plants his army at Megiddo to stop Nechor's Egyptian army going through. Why? Because Josiah believed that he was the Messiah, that this was the Messianic period, and therefore that wasn't going to happen because of the verse, once we do have the Messianic period, the verse, The sword shall not pass through your land. Like many messiahs, after him, Josiah was a literalist. You're not going to pass through here with that army. An encounter with Pharaoh's army that cost Josiah his life. Leading, of course to the very famous statement attributed to the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Echa. Ruach hapenu, Mashiach Hashem. Yeah, the spirit of our, of our breath, the spirit of our nostrils, the Messiah of God. Nelkad <speaking in Hebrew> b'shitotam is caught in their in the traps. In the, I mean, it was, a, um, it was a devastating moment for the Jewish people. It was, the, it was a taste that we had that was going to come back at various times in Jewish history where a belief (coughs) in the potential of the Messiah, when that failed, when it failed to be realized, left um, a, a sense and a feeling of despair. And there's something beyond disappointment. But nevertheless, the kingdom of Judah stumbled on. The next figure I want to talk about, but not for long. (laughs) Not for long at all. Because obviously, Josiah's son became king, Jehoahaz. And three months later, he's carted off to Egypt. That's the fulfillment of Vayolech Hashem et Malkacha. Hashem will take your king away. happens almost immediately to Josiah's son. Then... We get this king called Yehoiakim, another of Josiah's sons, who, not a nice person, another despotic ruler. And then when he dies, 10 years or so later, he is re- succeeded by his son, Jehoniah. Now, Jehoniah is a messianic figure. Jehoniah is a messianic figure. Because Jehoiachin sat on the throne for three months before he was carted away by the invading army of the new power on the block, Babylon. There's no more Assyria now. Egypt is also for fall. There's only Babylon. And Babylon have come to make sure that the Judeans are going to be loyal and... Uh, They siege Jerusalem and they invade it and they conquer it and they take the king away. The king has only been on the throne for just over three months, the young Jehoiachin, and they take him to Babylon, and he is placed. And in his place, they put as the next ruler is his uncle, the last remaining king, brother or son of Josiah of those brothers of that generation that hadn't been king. That of course is Tzidkiyahu, who is the last king to sit on the throne of Judah. During Tzidkiyahu's reign, Yechoniah is living in Babylon. The Babylonians do not kill Yechoniah. So we now technically have two kings, one sitting on the throne in Jerusalem as the king of Judah and the other in Babylon as the king in exile. Those two figures... Formed around, there were formed around those two figures, lobby groups within the Judean state itself. Some of whom recognized, well, they all recognized Zedekiahu as the official king at the moment, but some of whom were still holding out hope for the restoration of Yehoniah. That Yechoniah, in fact, was going to be, is the Mashiach. And at any point now, the Babylonians are going to collapse and Yechoniah is going to come back with all the vessels that were stolen and restore the Judean Commonwealth and restore the Davidic kingship and restore the new social order, etc. He's the Mashiach. And famously, in chapter 28 of the book of Jeremiah that uh, the prophet Hanani ben Azur, the false prophet, it was a movement, it was a false, it was possibly the first false messianic movement. He prophesies about this. He says, Yochania coming back. Within two years, Yochania will be coming back. You've got nothing to worry about. The Babylonians are on the edge of destruction. <laughs> Jeremiah says to him, you know what Jeremiah said to him when... Uh, when he said that prophecy Jeremiah's first response was amen All right, right? Sounds good. I. But it ain't gonna happen. Because God didn't speak to you. He spoke to me. I know he didn't speak to you because I know what it's like when God speaks to a person look at me I'm a wreck. God burns my bones when he talks in me you're standing there in the court of Tzidkiyahu stroking your beard going I've prophesied no you didn't prophesize anything and in fact Yohonya did not come back I'll tell you who came back the Babylonians they came back in 587 and they destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. So it was a false. All of these things, all of these phenomena in Tanakh to do with the Messianic idea inform the way we were going to view it in the next few weeks when we look at the Messianic figures throughout history because they're all drawing from these ideas. There is, of course, one more figure I'm going to speak about briefly before I wind up and really which which kind of culminates the entire point of this talk about the synthesis between these two, because it is now driven forward. It's now kind of in place. If you look, for example, let me read this to you, just thinking. If you look, for example, at uh, Sefer Yechezkel, and you look at uh, chapter 37, the famous chapter 37, I mean, listen to you, Chizkel, what he's saying here. He's saying, mm-hmm. My servant David shall be king over them. There shall be one shepherd for all of them. They shall follow my rules and faithfully obey my laws. They shall remain in the land which I gave to my servant Jacob and in which your fathers dwelt. They and the children the children's children shall dwell there forever with my servant David as their prince for all time. The interesting thing about that is because, and I, I, I just need to go back to Yehonyah for a moment. Because Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, that was Ezekiel, but the prophet Jeremiah had already described what a terrible king Yehonyah was, even during the time that he was on the throne, the short time. He was useless. I mean, apart from the whole false prophecies that were coming at Jeremiah, he had a personal and divinely inspired opinion about Yehonyah, that he was useless. So useless, in fact, that he famously says, no descendant of Yehonyah will be on the throne. Them's fighting words. It means that that's a chestnut, by the way, for quite a number of different issues. Like I said, every topic is its own subject in Jewish and sometimes even Jewish Christian studies. Obviously, you know who draws his lineage through Yehonyah, so they've all run around trying to defend that, but it's very clear in Yerim that he says that. The Messiah has to be a Davidic king descended from David, but it can't go through Yehonyah. And yet, in the very next chapter, Yerim himself is presenting the synthesis of the Aharite Yamim with the davidic king. So he still believes in the concept of the davidic king being the one who ushers it in, even Jeremiah and even though he's cursed at Jehohanan. And then there's the destruction and the exile, the full exile into Babylon. And there is the prophet Ezekiel. And the prophet Ezekiel himself in chapter 37 as I just read is giving you this stunning synthesis. The belief that there is a relationship between the Davidic king, a specific Davidic king who is righteousness personified and the new age that the prophets have envisaged persists beyond. In fact, in a way, the failures that have come so far have simply served to propel the idea forward because now it's an established concept. Now it's non-fulfillment can only mean a deferment to a future period and it wasn't long because the last messianic candidate i want to look at just for a couple of minutes is of course coming right after the babylonian exile with the return and that of course is ezra. again ezra. no not yet ezra and Ezra's is not davidic interesting Uh, okay this figure is a strange messianic candidate because the great return was prophesied in a very specific sense it was prophesied by the prophet jeremiah at the end of the first temple he even knew how long it would last But when it came, it kind of underwhelmed everyone's expectations. It wasn't the great big apocalyptic return that the earlier prophets seemed to be indicating. It turns out there was a Messiah. But not only was he not a Davidic descendant, he wasn't even from the tribe of Judah And not only was he not from the tribe of Judah, he wasn't from any tribe because he wasn't even Jewish. The prophet Isaiah refers to him as Mashiach to Koresh Cyrus. The great Persian ruler who defeated Babylon and decreed that nations can go back to their homelands and restore their cultural and religious institutions, including the Jews. The famous decree of Cyrus. Isaiah writes, God says to his Messiah, Koresh, not only did we not get the fireworks... But everything was done au natural. And it's difficult to whip up messianic apocalyptic fervour when things are basically okay. I have a friend, it's interesting, I have a friend who believes, I'm uh, not going to enter into a, an argument or discussion about this now, but he believes that it would have been better in 1948 if instead of creating the State of Israel, that the British had kept Palestine, the entire mandate, but turned it into a country called Palestine and brought it into the British Commonwealth. Not only would they be playing cricket, but things would be extremely civilised, according to my friend. Yeah? They'd be, you know, they'd be driving on the left and they would be... You know, it would be a very civilized, culturally British place, like Australia, like New Zealand. I didn't want to point out to him that Pakistan is also (laughs) (laughs) Commonwealth That was the situation for the Jews in the wider Persian Empire. They left us alone. We were basically allowed to rebuild our state and our commonwealth, but it would be extremely similar to today. Australia is in the commonwealth. The queen is the head of state. You can't have a messianic righteous king that's going to usher in a whole new world order if he's got to salute the Persian flag every morning. One figure around whom some level of messianic aspiration takes place is, of course, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the figure who is the nominal leader of the Jewish people and the return. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Yehonia. So interestingly enough, the prophecy of Jeremiah comes true in the fact that Zerubbabel returns, but cannot assume the position or the title of king. He's called Fahat Yehuda, the governor of Judah. At best, he's a Nasi, he's a prince, but he can't be a king. Everything about the career of Zerubbabel is the messianic idea in suspension. The great prophecies about the return were not fulfilled. They got banalized in a way. It was all a bit ordinary. and That's not to say it wasn't amazing. But it's a bit like when you meet people that lived through the 20th century. I don't know if you know anyone like that, who lived through the 20th century that saw the restoration of Israel from the Holocaust after 2,000 years of exile and went, that's nice. It is possible to live through unbelievable moments in history and still think they're kind of, okay, that was just the flow of events and not see phenomenal divine intervention. I'll tell you who was very excited about Zerubbabel were the two great prophets that accompanied him on his return and attempted with him to restore the spiritual and physical Israel. That, of course, were the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai called Zerubbabel the signet ring of God. That's a very interesting phrase because that phrase had already been used by Jeremiah in relation to Yehonia saying, God says, even if you were my signet ring, I would cast you off. And here Haggai is calling Zerubbabel in the next a few generations later, when they come back from Babylon, he's calling you, You're my signet ring. You are the correct leader. And Zachariah, well. Zachariah. <laughs> you'll say to him, in other words, to ish behold a man, Tzemach Shmo, and his name is Tzemach, and from under him, it will flourish forth, because that's the meaning of the word Tzemach, and he'll build the temple of the Lord, Zerubbabel's mission was, to rebuild the temple, a messianic mission, it was to usher in a new eon, the prophet Zechariah calls him Tzemach and that is a direct allusion. Really, probably, really, probably, I believe it's a direct allusion to statement made in uh, in, in in the fourth chapter of Yeshayahu and the twenty third chapter of of Yirmiyahu, where they refer to the Messiah as Tzemach And Zechariah is using that language deliberately to say, we believe that there is the potential for this person to fulfill the messianic promise of the great synthesis between a Judean king who acts in the name of God as a signet ring and the ushering in of an era of righteousness. But it would appear that the generation, that was not the generation it was to be, just like Josiah. You had a lot of Lego in place, but it was not to be some scholars who have wanted to support the proposition that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, that they believe that the messianic idea doesn't really appear until the first century BCE or the first century CE, ask the question, well, if you've got all of those statements from the prophets and in the Bible, Talking and this synthesis being developed. And if you think that the idea was already formulated by the time you come out of the second temple, and that's out of the first temple, and that's kind of one of the key ideas is that the destruction of the exile meant that all of the promises of restoration had to be deferred to a later date, and that that's the essential messianic idea. But if that was the case, then how come? for the whole period after Zerubbabel. So from the, you know, early 5th century BCE, right up to the 1st century BCE, there's no explosion or manifestation of messianic yearning. The idea does not seem to be apparent. I mean, even the Hashmonaim, with all their kind of priestly king nationalism on crack even they weren't really that running around talking about davidic kings and restorative eons and it's a good question and it would appear that it's connected the answer would probably lie connected with the point i was making before about the actual social and historical conditions of the jewish people during the second temple period where they were part of either some superpowers Commonwealth that was basically letting them be with bumps along the road but the Persian period's quiet the Hellenic period is a little less quiet interesting but nevertheless Alexander the Great didn't come and try and wipe out the Jews if anything he he confirmed their position in their location and where they are and what they're doing And over the succeeding couple of centuries, his successors tried to Hellenize the whole of the Middle East. But no one was really trying to make conditions significantly oppressive against which you would rebel. And so the idea went into some level of abeyance until, of course, along come the Romans and already there are some great existential questions about who are we and what's happening and the revival again of the re- delayed and deferred fulfillment of the prophetic promise. So we are going to pick up next week. I'm going to find one up here. We are going to pick up next week from that exciting point because it is right there in that crucible of the first century BCE and the second century, sorry, the first century CE and the second century CE, when we look at figures like Jesus of Nazareth, like Bar and other messianic figures and i'm very very keen to see what it is i'm going to say (laughs) so i hope that i will see as many i know this has been not an easy lecture to sit through i can see in some of you we have covered a lot of different material you do realize once again i will be annoyed at the things i left out it's much more interesting than i've made it but i look forward to seeing some of you next week because i want to continue this journey with you all right Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.